Lion Trust are the proud partner of The Athletic's In The Boardroom podcast. Lion Trust have been an independent asset manager since 1995. Right now, they're giving you a chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. All you need to do is visit liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic to find out more. Head towards your financial goals with Lion Trust. Now, this competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Jackie Oatley and welcome to the latest episode of In the Boardroom from The Athletic. I've been speaking to influential people who operate at senior levels in football about their experiences of working in the game. In this episode, we're speaking to Paul Conway, co-chairman of Barnsley Football Club and co-founder of the Pacific Media Group, or PMG. PMG is one of an increasing number of multi-club groups, alongside the likes of the Red Bull Group and the City Football Group. PMG, at the time of recording, has investments in Barnsley, AS Nancy-Lorraine in France's second division, FC Thun in the second tier of Swiss football, KV Oostende in Belgium's top division, Espier FB in Denmark's second tier, and FC Den Bosch in the Dutch second tier. We spoke to Paul about why he decided to start investing in European football and how his specific multi-club model works in practice, amongst other things. I started by asking Paul why PMG chose Barnsley as a club they wanted to invest in. We were in Nice at the time and we definitely wanted to invest in England. And it's hard to find a club that believes in youth, believes in data. If you get into a club without that, you have to really recreate that. And Barnsley was already well on its way from a data perspective, mainly focused on UK-based players and pretty strong commitment to youth. And what was the reaction when it became known that you were interested in buying the club and also... Bearing in mind your approach is not necessarily always at peace with what uh, UK football fans tend to like traditionally. Well, at first, there's always the fever of, uh uh-oh, here comes some big spending foreigners. And we made sure to set the expectations that we were going to continue the club strategy, balance the budgets, expand the recruiting to more of the continents, but we're not going to spend money recklessly to chase a dream. So that calmed people down pretty quickly. What would you say your long-term goals are for the club? And ultimately, we do want to get the team promoted to the Premier League. But we want to do it in our way, which is definitely the slower way, building year by year, continuing the balance of budget in the most competitive league in Europe, where the average team lost £10 million prior to the pandemic. And now you see teams losing 20, 30 million pounds. And that's hard. That's hard because that's not the way the league is run. And it's there's a lot of reckless investors that want to throw money at a club, play roulette a little bit, see if you get promoted. And then if not, they don't care if the team ends up in administration. So that's not our business model. Just tell us a little bit, a bit more about your philosophy from a PMG investment point of view and what you're hoping to achieve. So we're mainly 
coming from an American perspective. And you look at American sports pre-pandemic for the big three or four sports, every team pretty much balances a budget. So we start from that perspective. And then we look at the landscape within Europe and we say, how can we compete? Because we tend to have smaller budget teams compared to other teams in our division. We may not be able to afford the best technical players, but we can afford good athletes. And utilizing data to look at thousands and thousands of good athletes. We need to have a strategy of more youth because for us to compete, we need to generate transfer profits. And then our belief is we can reinvest those transfer profits better than most clubs. And then we have a uniform style of play of a a high press. And that logically fits within a young athletic team. And a lot of the leagues we're in, we're really the only team playing that style of play. And that business plan didn't come overnight. It came over time. And that's what we're committed to. How has the reaction been so far to what you've been trying to achieve at your various clubs by this method? Well, so we're very open when we get into a club and we say, like, for, for example, we got into Belgium 16, 17 months ago, a club that was a week away from bankruptcy. Since we've been in Belgium, two other teams were liquidated. And these are teams, some of them are 100 years old. Now, that's not good for any industry. So we're going into Belgium and Ustend lost 7 million euros the year before. And we said, we're going to work to a balanced budget. And we're going to play pressing, attacking football with young players. Everybody kind of laughed at us, and that's okay. You know, we're, we're okay with being laughed at because we know it works. But why would they laugh at you? What's wrong with that? Because there's inherent bias for even knowledgeable people in the industry. There's bias of, oh, you can't be successful without older players. When you do an empirical analysis of it, there's actually no truth to that. You do need players with some experience, but we look at experiences games played, not age. For example, I mean, we have one 21-year-old at Barnsley. He's into his sixth year in the EFL. So we're always looking for players like that. And then from a data perspective, it's routinely mocked. So all American sports are really driven by data. All key decisions are data-driven, just like any other industry. And you bring that philosophy to Europe, and people are like, oh, no, no. It's this sporting director has been a sporting director for 30 years. He's got a good nose for players. This is the way American sports were 20, 30 years ago. So there's a big pushback on that idea, but that's okay. It doesn't influence us. This Moneyball concept, people would laugh about that over here and they'd roll their eyes and they'd say, oh, Americans are data and statistics. Well, this is football. This is our sport. We know what we're talking about. And using data just won't work in this particular sport. Do you think they've been proven wrong now? 100%. If you look at the success of the Red Bull group and some of our success, we're doing it in multiple markets in Europe. So it's the same sport. And so if it works in one country, it's going to work in other countries. But I would say only 5% of clubs actually entertain it. And a lot of clubs spend money on data, but then the data people are put in the basement And then you have some coach or sporting director saying, well, you know, we can't sign this guy because he runs funny or he's too tall or he's too short. And it's kind of laughable. But the pandemic has tightened budgets of clubs. I don't think it's going to really further the embracement of data. But I think as more Americans invest in the sports, 
And this is where the data is coming from, the data strategy. I think you'll see change. This is going to be very, very slow. I had lunch with a chief executive of a club that does very much embrace the statistical performance-related recruitment strategy. They'd had some certain problems with an individual and his behaviour off pitch. And I said to him, it's great that you use the data strategy, but surely you need to also pick up the phone to the club that he's been at before or previous clubs or people that know this guy when you're recruiting someone and ask what he's like as a person and as a character and how does he treat his wife or how does he treat his teammates and is he respectful in the dressing room? And the answer I got was, we believe that his behaviour will be reflected in the stats. So therefore you don't need to pick up the phone to anybody to check on this guy's character. How do you see it? There's an element to that that's true. You can pick up a lot of behavioral information in the statistics. I think a lot depends upon the amount you're investing. For example, this summer for our clubs, we signed over 40 players. For us, if you're investing more than a million euros in a player, you're going to definitely do, I think, more of that. But if you're signing a player for free on low wages, you know you're going to get a bias when you call people, naturally. And we see this country by country. For example, when we signed our last few coaches in Barnsley, they've been German, Austrian, or German-speaking. Some of them that we've called on got horrible reviews from the industry because there's a tremendous amount of bias in the industry. So you have to really be careful relying on subjective viewpoints because we know there is natural bias. But yeah, we do agree, the more you invest in a player, the more diligence you need. Oh, perhaps that's where you need to uh, speak to friendly journalists, you see, to get the true picture of uh, how a manager or a player is viewed rather than relying on somebody who has a vested interest in either giving a good or not such good review of them. But then as a journalist, maybe I would say that. I think, I mean, that's a fair point, because the good thing about data is that we want ideas from everywhere because we can independently check those ideas. And most football clubs aren't run like that way. They're run as, okay, we love this left back. We have to do whatever it takes to sign this left back. The sporting director and coach loves them. And then what ultimately happens is you overpay for that left back versus our mentality is, okay, we need a left back for this team. Who are our top 20 targets? Okay. We can't afford these six, rule them out. These other six don't want to come to the club. So now we're down to eight. Let's force rank them and just go down the list. Because we always have alternatives. And at the same time, we're always bidding 12 months a year on players. Because the price discovery process gives us incredible information. And this is not the way most clubs run. If I could just go back briefly to the answer you gave me when I asked about how you see a player's behavior in the data. Can you give us an example of that? The simple one is just proclivity for picking up cards. Certain positions usually require a certain amount of cards per season. But when you see attackers picking up a tremendous amount of yellow and sometimes red cards, that's a warning sign. And what about his off-field behavior and how that might impact on the club? Well, I, I think with the digitalization of the world, it's pretty easy to, <laughs> to run a Google search on players to see if have they been arrested, have they been suspended by previous clubs. And then obviously, if there's a fact pattern, 
that gives some concern. But I mean, just frankly, if we're signing a player for a hundred thousand transfer fee, besides things like that, we're not doing a whole lot because we'd rather put our time and resources into the data. I completely understand that. But do you look at their, not you personally, but do your stats people look at their social media profile, for example, and see the sort of things that they tweet about or talk about or post pictures about and how they interact with other people and fans? As we spend more on transfers and wages, there's more, even more scrutiny. But you have to balance that. When there's red flags with with social media, it's pretty easy to pick it up. But it also we've signed players with broken legs before. So (laughs) you have to take a little counterintuitive perspective on players sometimes. Sometimes players have had issues for, you know, legitimate reasons. And as one of a smaller budget club, we have to take some some risks sometimes. What sort of interactivity do you have at Barnsley between them and other clubs within the group in terms of transfer policy and playing style, etc.? So part of our pitch is really giving executives, coaches, and players really more of a career path. And there's a lot of leakage in the industry. Club pays lots of money for a transfer, player leaves in a couple years. And so it's a loss to the club. And so when we pitch younger players or even players who are going through the end of their contracts. And, and we have plenty of examples of this, where a player went from Barnsley to Ustend. He wasn't going to extend with Barnsley, and Barnsley gets a transfer fee and a continued interest in the player, and the player's happy playing in Belgium. In Nancy this summer, player ended his contract, wasn't going to extend, had a bunch of offers. We pitched them on going to Ustend. We invested in Den Bosch in Holland. Two young players through Sten weren't going to play, and they're, they're on loan at Den Bosch. So there's also this the basic supply and demand issue. Oh, we got three left backs at one club, and one club doesn't have any. So we, we sent uh, five players from Barnsley to Espier, because we'd rather them playing in a competitive league than playing in the under-23s. They're going to see a higher level of competition. They're also going to be highlighted. And so far, um, two said, hey, they want to stay permanently. And one of those players, Barnsley, has a buyback option. So it's kind of win-win for everybody. And so we'd rather have these players playing within the other clubs that have a similar style of play than playing random under-23 matches. And looking at the situation with Nice, which you bought and then sold a couple of years ago, how do you reflect on that now? Is that a perfect example of everything going to plan there? Is that what you wanted to happen or did it all pan out a little bit differently for you? It's, I mean, like most things in life, you know, you can have your best plans, but uh, yeah, stuff happens as they say. So as we always say, we'll stay at a club as long as we think we're creating value and then we're welcomed by the local community. So we had great success at Nice. We got the team in the Champions League for the first time in its history built a 17 million euro new uh, academy and training center, generating a tremendous amount of transfer profits, which was reinvested in the squad. So the squad value went up about four times in three years, grew merchandising, grew sponsorship, grew attendance. And sometimes when you have success, a lot of your partners locally, it changes the dynamic a little bit. So we balanced the budget three years in a row at Nice while growing the club. And then after getting some really big success, a lot of the the locals 
in Nice wanted us to go for Champions League every year. And we said, that's just not our business plan because that's going to run up 10 or 20 million euros per year in losses, hoping that you get lucky. And then when you look at the raw statistics of it, we're competing against teams that have 10, 8, 6 times our budget. So over over a course of a 38-game season, it gets hard, statistically very, very hard. And so we're not going to gamble with the future of the team that you've seen others in Europe do, and then the club ends up in administration. And so then the local community said uh, they didn't think we had ambition and wanted us out. And, and our perspective of, well, we control the club. Uh, we're, not, we, we're happy here. We're, we're not in any rush. And then a buyer came in and gave a bunch of bids. And we said to ourselves, well, we think we've done well here. We've accomplished a lot. And people want us to move on locally. So we moved on. Ricardo Pereira qui va fixer le plus possible. Ricardo Pereira qui se joue de Maxwell. Oh, quel numéro Avec Mario Balotelli qui résiste à Berlin. Et la frappe gauche de Mario Balotelli est exceptionnelle. Exceptionnelle le but d'histoire dans sa formation, dans sa construction et dans sa conclusion à zéro pour l'OGC Nice. How difficult is that side of things? The fact that you're dealing with local communities, you're dealing with people who've maybe seen things done a certain way for decades. You come in and have a very different way of doing things. Do you think communication is essential here that you engage with the local people and explain to them via media, social media, however else? that you're actually in this for them and you do want what's best for the club for obvious reasons. You want it to be a success and that they should trust you. And and what sort of reaction have you had from certain clubs when you've tried to do that? Communication is important. If we went out and said, oh, just trust us, it's going to enrage a lot of local fans even more. We're always very honest with what we say. And this is the way things are going to be. We're not going to run up losses chasing unrealistic dreams. The first time, I think it's hard, but after that, we just get used to it, and we're consistent with our message, and it doesn't really phase us when people may say, oh, you lack ambition. That's what we hear all the time. You guys lack ambition. And I ask, well, what does that mean? Well, we want you to chase a dream, be that promotion or winning a cup or Champions League or Europa League. And then we just have an honest conversation and say, well, that will require running up a a lot of losses, and we would rather do it in a more prudent way. And it's sort of what we're doing right now, also in, in Ostens. When we got there, it was, please save our club. And then it was very quickly, it's like, oh, yeah, we want Champions League. And we just obviously said, well, that's not the business plan. The team's quite profitable now. So we're playing more the long game. It is the cruel sport, which is like the basis of, of Moneyball. But you can have an edge if you have a different plan. And so in Belgium, we're really the only team fully dedicated to pressing and youth and data. And that gives us an edge. Football is littered with club owners, chief executives, directors who intended to be prudent, but actually maybe under some pressure from fans, they ended up 
slightly just loosening the purse strings and thinking, oh, maybe the fans are right. If we just go for that extra striker, if we just spend an extra few million here or there, maybe we could actually not just chase the dream, but achieve the dream. Have you ever been swayed by that? Or are you religiously sticking every time to the budget, the plan, the data, the limitations, sticking within living within your means as the rest of us try to do? Uh, Yeah, we're pretty dedicated to it. And I understand since we're not from these towns, it's much harder for the local investors to stick to that. And I see it every day. I can't even go to the supermarket without getting hassled. I can't even get pumped some gas without people running up to me and yelling in my face. It does have an impact. So the way I would answer that is, yeah, we're, we're religious to a budget, but we also take gambles too calculated gambles like so for example for some of our academies we don't really have much data on it we're relying on more subjective data to it but it's just they're lower price gambles twenty five thousand pounds on a player that we're purely relying on somebody's perspective on it but yeah we're not going to do that for and to pressure ourselves to spend five million on a player just because there's local pressure. We have to take some counterintuitive bets on players. For example, the, the player that we signed with a broken leg, that goes against a lot of norm. But our philosophy is, well, we probably couldn't afford this player if he was healthy. We'll take some risk that other clubs won't, more on a portfolio basis. In the Boardroom is partnered by Lion Trust, an independent asset manager that invests in a positive future. Lion Trust's sustainable investment team seeks companies that help create a cleaner, safer, and healthier society, empowering and inspiring the wider community, and seeks to generate attractive returns for investors. Right now, Lion Trust wants to give you a chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. Just head to liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic. Answer the question, you could win. Now this competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. Find out more at liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic. Do you reckon there's an upper limit in terms of the number of clubs that you think you can own at one time? Yeah, sure. How do we end up in a lot of these clubs? It's because we recruit in these countries. So Denmark's a prime example. We have a big player at Barnsley from Denmark. So then we start looking at the local talent and we say, you know what, we're going to have an advantage if we actually invest in a club in the market. So yeah, I mean, I I think as of right now, only a, a couple other markets are interesting to us at this time. And then we just have to try to get more and more synergies out of the different clubs. Football's a huge business and you understand all about that with these various clubs that you're involved with and balancing budgets and you have your end game with all these clubs. But why did you actually get into sport when you could be working in an industry that is regulated perhaps the way you wish it to be rather than football, which mm, perhaps is a little frayed around the edges on that front, shall we say? Well, we're passionate about the sport. We we think we have some key advantages of some of our tools and it's a sport that's right for improvements and although a lot of this is frustrating to us and that's why we're not in u.s sports because it's extremely well managed and as as a reflection it's very expensive to 
we're in this industry because we are passionate about it. We think we have some interesting competitive tools, but there's a big need for more professional management in nearly every European league. So we come in with what we think is a bit of an edge that we wouldn't have in the U.S. Simple as that. For example, the Dodgers in American baseball, they have a 30-person, $5 million budget for data. This is just on the player recruitment side. And so, you know, for us to come into that, we don't really have much of an advantage. But in Europe, where there's a lack of commitment to this, it gives us an edge. People might look at what you're trying to do and see what Red Bull are doing as well and think, oh, that looks a similar kind of setup. Is it similar or are there key differences? Well, we're always looking for best practices in any industry. If you'll see, it's like we've had a bunch of Red Bull staff, coaches, come to our clubs and they've actually purchased one of our managers. So we think what they're doing is really interesting. They have a big commitment to youth. They play a high press style of play, but they're really recruiting in the world. And so that's why you see players from Japan and Nigeria and Argentina and and some of their clubs, because they're looking at the world. We're basically doing a a smaller aspect of this, where we're basically recruiting in, in Western Europe for most of our players. Can you see more organizations such as yourselves and such as Red Bull coming into football and and owning groups of clubs and exchanging players and managers between them and upskilling and training coaches and managers and then selling them on for a profit, et cetera. Is is that the way forward for football? I think as more Americans invest in European football, you'll see more of that. But it's going to be slow because it's hard. It takes a really good team to do that. It takes a lot of local knowledge. Belgium is a prime example of it. So five years ago, there was only one strategic investor. There's 24 professional teams. Fast forward five years, I think it's 12. And so that's already happening. And so I think you'll see that there'll be a lot more strategic investors in countries that allow this. And so you'll see that more in France. There's already a big consolidation underway. And then you know, you'll see it in other countries too. You've got Billy Bean, a silent partner with you. Moneyball has become famous now across professional sport with more and more organisations following that model, thinking actually perhaps it is the way forward. Do you see that continuing as it is or is it becomes more competitive and more people are using that model that somebody else will come up with a different way of doing things? Hey, we're open to different business strategies. <laughs> this is the one that based upon the layout of European football that works best for us. But the change is hard. There's so much pushback to to these basic philosophies, and it comes from all different parts of the ecosystem. You see it growing very, very slowly. But like most things, it always will evolve. And we have to consider all ideas. Uh, I mean, another core philosophy we have is youth at the executive level. If you meet most executives in European football, 60 years old, seven years old, and if you look at the same type of people in America, they just want the the best and the brightest. So you see plenty of 28-year-olds running baseball clubs. You wouldn't see that in Europe, but we've recruited a lot of young executives and then given them a tremendous amount of responsibility. And so our former CEO at Barnsley and then Nice, and he's running 
Bofustans and Nancy. And so like, why can't more clubs operate like that? Because it's, it, it's a huge advantage from a strategic implementation. It's also, there's less strategy drift. You see a tremendous amount of strategy drift in this industry, even with American owned clubs. And you see this in Italy, Americans buy control of an Italian club. They don't spend much time there. They have ideas like this and then things go awry. A big part of this is that you have to be there for this or just naturally things don't work. What would you say have been the biggest challenges that you've faced so far? Uh, it's a cruel sport. So we're, we're operating against teams that are relegated from the Premier League that have eight, nine, ten times our budget. We knew that going into it. The most surprising thing has been the lack of following rules by other clubs be it financial fair play, not paying bills, where in other leagues that we operate, there's more of a crackdown on that. And that's been surprising because we're competing in, in a country that created the sport. So we thought that the enforcement would be better. It is starting to get a little bit better now. So that makes an unfair game even more unfair. But that's okay. You know, we continue to work our model and grow the team, we think, year by year the right way. But that was a bit surprising. Why do you think there is that lack of keenness, if you like, to enforce those rules that are in place as you see it? The fundamental issue is it's a league of 72 teams. And whenever we try to advocate for better enforcement, and because again, it's like, we'll, we'll operate with whatever the rules are, but just everyone should also have to operate. But whenever we push for better enforcement, a lot of other clubs in the championship, they say, yeah, 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 we, we agree with upon that. But when it's time to vote, there's usually only one or two other clubs that actually vote for it. There's been a history of teams that haven't followed the rules in the championship, get promoted, and then you can't actually go after them until they get relegated again. So you know, just like anything in life, other people see that and say, what do I have to lose? So what do you think needs to change? Who needs to change the rules or who needs to enforce the rules better? Where do you point the finger? Well, it comes down to, again, like we're, we're not going on our soapbox and saying, oh, we need to change this rule or we need more financial fair play. Because until you actually have more accountants or cops, as we say, it doesn't really matter. You can create whatever rules you want. It's a fundamental relook at how do we better enforce this. And this is this actually gets up to the Premier League, the FA, and even anti-competitive authorities within the UK. Because just like any other industry, if people are willfully violating rules and anti-competitive behavior and then benefiting from it, and then not getting those previous uh, misdeeds enforced, it has to go to a bitter venue for enforcement than just within the football authorities. And do you have much support for your viewpoint and what you're trying to do from other clubs in the EFL? It's always yes, yes, yes. But when there's time for voting, people reserve their rights to come up with their own structure. So it, there's literally, I would say, two other clubs within the championship that see things the same way as this. And again, like we're not looking for any type of radical change. Basic enforcement of rules and stopping anti-competitive behavior. 
And what's your view on what's happened at Derby County? Well, I think uh, everyone saw that coming now for a couple of years. I feel for all the employees and the staff and the fans, but running up 20 to 30 million of losses for a team in the second a second division, it's just not sustainable. This was coming. It's Barnsley's turn to go in search of a winner that might well keep them up. Woodrow sends it across and it's put away. Extraordinary. Adur has scored in injury time and Barnsley have given themselves a fighting chance of staying up here. How would you describe life at Barnsley at the moment? You clearly have a lot of challenges there, particularly the Oakwell situation. How would you describe the way things are and what you're trying to achieve on that front? I think every day we have challenges for almost every club, but that's okay because with challenges come opportunity. And so we want to basically shrink the gap between other clubs in the championship. And part of that is budget. Part of that is the the quality of the squad. We need to grow the budget of our squads to to be competitive over the course of the season. It's really hard, as I mentioned earlier, if you have one-tenth or one-eighth of the budget of other teams in your league over a course of a full season, and, and the EFL is 46 games, to really be competitive. And so for us, every 100,000 pounds of new revenue or cost savings has a real big impact. And so, you know, be it with our grounds, and we've attempted in the past to try to buy it unsuccessfully, we need to generate more revenue. We need to do improve the fan experience. If we create organically, like we did in Nice, another you know, some millions of new revenue, that allows us to increase our budget 20, 30, 40%, and it allows us to be even more competitive. And so... We have to find ways to, to generate more revenue and then also have further cost efficiencies too. If you continue to struggle in terms of the ownership of Oakwell and you find that it doesn't work for you, is there a chance that Barnsley Football Club could move away from its famous old ground? Our goal is to stay there. We're tenants and we're okay with that. But we need to have some capital improvements to really help modernise the stadium. We were going to do that if we got control of it. We didn't get control. That's okay. We need more improvements. But at a certain point, it will get harder and harder for us to even get a license for a match because you know, there's obviously different standards. And right now, we're not able to use some of our parkings, a lot of our seats. So we'll continue to work with the town to make this work. But at a certain point, we need the improvements in the grounds. And if that doesn't happen? We're stewards of the club. So we have to keep all of our alternatives open. But the goal is to stay. Just say I was to put you in charge of the FL for a day, Paul. I'd love to know what you would put in place to change. You made it pretty clear about your frustration of the lack of implementation of certain rules and clubs not being forced to stick to them and not being pursued if they break them. But with that in mind, is there anything else that you would do to make football in this country better? Like in any other industry, you have to look at best practices in other country. And so like one of the best run leagues is the Spanish league. You don't see these administrations or players not getting paid, vendors not getting paid. And within the league, they have about 20 staff. Their full-time job is monitoring the finances. So the first thing I would do is I, I hire 10 accountants 
their job is really to monitor the finances of these clubs. Because right now, the, the EFL doesn't have that infrastructure. And so if, if you had that real-time monitoring of the financials where you can pick up much quicker um, versus waiting for a club to file annual statements, which may be uh, artful in their, uh, their way of uh, reporting, then you're going to have more real-time sanctions and monitoring of the club. So that's the first thing I would do. I've brought that up to people. People don't like that. Uh, because it gives clubs more scrutiny. And uh, we, we always tell people, it's like, yeah, look at our financials. They're, they're pretty straightforward. You, you, you can see how we run our clubs. But there's been so many Byzantine structures created by a significant amount of clubs in the EFL, mainly the championship, to try to skirt rules. And so people don't like that. But that's, that's like a good step forward, is to have more accountants at the league level. Thank you so much, Paul. That's fascinating. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks to Paul Conway for speaking to us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed that and would like to hear more insights from those operating at senior levels in football, then do subscribe to the In the Boardroom podcast feed. There you'll find interviews with people such as Arsenal's head of women's football, Claire Wheatley, and Preeti Shetty, a non-executive member of the board at Brentford. Plus, if your podcast app gives you the option, then you might just like to leave us a nice review. In the Boardroom from The Athletic is presented by me, Jackie Oatley, and is produced by Steve Hankey. The Athletic. Lion Trust are giving you the chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. All you need to do is visit liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic and answer the question. This competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. That's liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic.